welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is Jeremiah, chapter 30. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says Yahweh, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says Yahweh, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great that there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. And foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares Yahweh. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. But of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says Yahweh, your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you, they care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares Yahweh, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion, for whom no one cares. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be built on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves, their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me, for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares Yahweh. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold the storm of Yahweh, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. This is the word of the Lord. 
Our text today is a text of restoration for God's people, which is not the most common theme in the prophetic writings, but it's there. Sometimes you have to search for it, but this is one of those straightforward texts where God promises that he is going to restore his holy people. He's going to restore, and he even says, both Israel and Judah. Jeremiah is not written to the people of Israel. It's written to the people of Judah who are being taken into exile in Babylon. Israel's been gone for over a century, for probably, it's hard to know the exact date of the writing of this chapter, uh, but 722 BC to 587 BC is the difference in destruction. That's 135 years. There's a significant time gap there. And, and the Israelites were carried into exile in Assyria. Assyria has been defeated by Babylon. So this new land of Babylon where these Judaites are going to end exile, that's the same place that the Israelites would likely still be as well. Now, God speaks to Jeremiah here and says, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. Hence, why we have this book. And, really, why we have the Bible, period. If there were no restoration, if there were no hope for the Christian, we wouldn't have the the Word of God. We wouldn't have the Bible. There'd be no purpose to it. And that's... That's what's coming across in this idea. Write this down so that the people have it. So that the people have hope. And we know as Christians who have have the New Testament as well as the Old, that all of this hope, all of this talk of restoration points us even further to Christ himself and how he restores us from our sins in our exile in the midst of this world under the power of the devil. Now, a family question here in this first section Where did the Bible come from? For really little kiddos, uh, you're just looking for them to be able to acknowledge, to know that the Bible is God's word. So where did the Bible come from? God is a perfectly good answer, right? And you can expound upon it. You can teach them a little bit more about how God inspired men to write it, how God worked through the Holy Spirit. God worked through these men to write it down. In some cases, he told it to them directly. In other cases, he worked in a, a little bit more of a mysterious way, I guess we could say. Um, it's hard to describe to kids the inspiration of Holy Scripture, but you can give it a shot. Now, if your children are older, there is the idea of digging into the, the actual history of how we got God's Word, which is important. The Old Testament, um, there's very little question about. The New Testament is the one that gets attacked uh, well, by by Jews and by atheists alike, really. The Jewish people were the ones who maintained the Old Testament for generations, centuries, technically millennia, I suppose. And so when it comes to conversations of how we got the Bible, it's not the Old Testament that comes under fire. We inherited the Old Testament. We share the Old Testament in common with the Jewish people, although we see it very differently than they do. We do not worship the same God because they do not believe Jesus is God. Now, the New Testament, very different story. So the the Old Testament scriptures had already been copied um, significantly and exist all throughout the, the Roman Empire, really, if you want to look at it that way. And every synagogue has copies of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, as Paul begins his missionary journeys, 
he goes to the synagogues first because there they have the word of God. And as Jesus does on the road to Emmaus and shows how all of the Old Testament points to him, that's basically what Paul does. He goes to the synagogue, they open up the scriptures, and he shows them how it's talking about Jesus. The New Testament writers then don't begin writing until the, uh, the 40s AD, so at least 15 years after Christ's resurrection, and they start recording words finally for us of what they have seen and heard, the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, which gives you Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You also eventually will get John, but he writes his a good 60 years after the resurrection, right before he dies. And then we get the epistles written by various people, uh, primarily Paul wrote most of them. And his first one, as far as I'm con- aware, I think it's Galatians is the first one that he wrote. I could be off on that. Uh, it's tricky to date them exactly, so it's hard to know. But most of the New Testament is going to be written in the late 40s through the early 60s, except for the stuff again from John, which comes around 90 AD or so. Now, the way those work is that they were written and then they were distributed. So Paul would write the letter to the church in Ephesus and he would send it to them. He would send it along and they would read it. And if they they thought this is God's word, this is good and, and beneficial for the church, they would make copies of it and they would start sending those copies to other congregations, other local house churches in different cities nearby. And over time, those words then spread. The Eventually, we get to the point where the early church fathers, because of some heresy in the church, there was a man named Marcion debating which books we really needed. He only wanted to have a part of Luke and then just a part of the epistles as well. And the early church fathers decided it's good to write down what we have. And so they didn't just make up what was in there, but in the, in the second century, the early second century, they're already starting to make lists of the different books of the New Testament that they're aware of. Uh, letters of the apostles, basically, that, that are being used in the churches. And it is those books that are being used that end up compiling the New Testament that we have today. So that's a, a brief rundown. Another part of it is that these letters end up getting hidden, oftentimes. And you think about archaeology and how the archaeologists are still finding them. Christianity was illegal. And so our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first, second, third century who had copies of Scripture, they would bury that Scripture when they knew that, uh, for example, a Roman troop was on its way and was going to investigate them. They would bury the Scripture, they'd hide it, in hopes that one day they'd be able to come back and unearth their copies of God's Word. The fact that we're finding them means they didn't get to go back, either because they were imprisoned and sent somewhere else or because they were martyred for their faith. So part of having these documents today is the faithful work of the church, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, granted, it's all the work of Jesus. It's all the work of God that we would know him. It is his work. But he often will work through his people to do that as well. Just as you have faith today, that is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit creates faith But at the same time, we can also give thanks for whoever it was that first shared that good news of Jesus Christ with you. So that's a little bit much more, I guess. All right, so we're over halfway through the show and I've covered, what, two verses. All right, here we go. A little bit faster now. God promises restoration to his people, both nations. Verses 5 
through 7 get at the idea of the distress that is upon them. Uh, the picture, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Referencing uh, the picture of hunger and sickness and stress that is facing the people of God at this time. Alas, the day is so great, none like it is a time for distress for Jacob. So this is a reference to the exile that they're facing, yet he shall be saved out of it. God will rescue. God will deliver. Again, we can, we can put this forward to us today. We are in exile here. We suffer in this land in which we live, and yet the Lord will rescue us out of it. He will take us to the paradise, the home that he is preparing for us even now in Christ. That's going to be the next part. Verse 8, it shall come to pass, I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. This is a reference to the king who is oppressing them. It's not going to be Nebuchadnezzar. It will ultimately be one of his descendants, who technically himself is not king. Daniel chapter 5, Belteshazzar, whose father is king, but father never wanted to be king, so he's self-exiled. And Belteshazzar just steps into the office that he wanted for himself anyway. But he gets destroyed. He's the one defeated, and the Babylonian Empire crumbled on his watch as the Lord brought judgment upon it. Now, we see that God is going to raise up for his people a new king, David their king. Now, David has already died. This is going to be a theme of Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost sermon of Peter. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw this and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So you can see that theme coming through. Now the question here for the children, who is this king that God is going to give us? Again, that's another pretty easy one that we want our kids to be able to recognize. Jesus is our king. Jesus isn't just a nice man in a story. He is our king. So he's real. He lives. He has lived. He does live again. He really did die and rise. And he lives forevermore. And he reigns. That's the beauty of the ascension. He reigns on high. He's enthroned in the heavenly throne room. And he rules over all. Then verse 10, so God calls upon his people to not be afraid, to not be dismayed, because he will save them. He will restore their offspring from captivity. He will bring them back to the promised land. You can see a both and in this, uh, a little bit of this section. Most of this section really does sound more closer to restoration from exile brought back to the promised land of Judah. But you can see some foreshadowing to the restoration of all of his people from sin, death, and the devil to the promised land that is paradise as well. So the future that yet awaits us. The idea that he will give us quiet and ease, that we will not have to be afraid because he has saved us. Verse 11, I will make a full end of all the nations. Old Testament judgment here, this is primarily Babylon, but we think about the New Testament era. This is true. That every nation will crumble, every nation will fall. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, that Jesus will defeat every power and every authority and every rule in this place. And yet, 
So God's not going to make a full end of them. God is going to make a full end of Babylon. That happens in 539. He's going to discipline them. That's his people, his people of Judah. He's going to discipline them, and he will not leave them unpunished. He will indeed, he will indeed save them, but discipline will come for sin. In a sense, we can talk about this also of ourselves, that the Lord saves us, but there is discipline in this life. Uh, our sins do not go unpunished, and we are disciplined for them, and we are strengthened by the suffering that we face and the trials that we face in this life and in this world. The Lord then laments that their their wound is incurable for them. They cannot save themselves. And that he is the one, because their guilt is so great, he is the one who has done these things to them. There is no one that can save from his hand. However, verse 17, I will restore health to you. Your wounds I will heal. And because they have called you an outcast, so he will save them. You thought they were outcast. You thought God could not heal and God will show you to be wrong. God will heal them. So he will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound. The mound or a hill, a reference to the, the high place on which Jerusalem was built as a city. Uh, the highest mound or hill in the, the area. The palace shall stand where it used to be. And that's going to come to pass as well as Jerusalem is rebuilt uh, when they return from exile. So there will be thanksgiving, celebration, God will multiply them, they will not be few, their children shall be as they were of old, which is a reference to the numerous, numerous people of God and, and the richness of their offspring that they continued to have. Their prince shall be one of themselves. This is a reference to putting an end to the puppet kings, uh, an end to their time in exile when they were under foreign oppression and foreign rule. Their ruler shall come out from their own midst. That's going to be a reference ultimately to the Messiah, and it's going to take a few centuries. The Messiah will not come out from their own midst immediately, but will indeed take time. So the Messiah Jesus comes about 500 years after they return from exile, and in the meantime, they are under Persian rule, and then Greco rule, and then Roman rule. So they go through a few different empires before Christ finally comes. I will make him draw near, he shall approach me. Who would dare of himself to approach me? So we don't come to God. The Lord brings us to himself. This particularly a reference to that Messiah who he would bring to himself. Verse 22, you shall be my people. I will be your God. Very common Old Testament, Old Covenant language um, seen throughout. And then the text is going to end with some more judgment of the Lord against the enemies who have heaped... Um, well, violence upon the heads of Israel. So, so the Lord will come as a whirling tempest and burst upon the head of the wicked, executing his fierce anger upon them. In the latter days you will understand this. It might be a reference to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, as Jesus says in John chapter 15, that when he ascends into heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit to us, who would teach us all things, and in the truth would point us to Christ. So the disciples very clearly don't understand the Gospels themselves until Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming upon them and giving them such a rich gift.